everybody and their neighbor, Chet Stone welcoming you back to Gear and Gigs, the music podcast. So glad you guys could drop by. Don't forget to subscribe. Please check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And let me tell you a little bit about our show today. So we have Trey Hawkins, our co-host, remotely located and uh, socially distancing even more than usual. And we've got some special guests in the studio today, the members of a band that I really, really dig, Seven Horse. We got Joey and Phil. Phil, how you guys doing? Good. What's up, man? So glad you guys could stop by. We got a lot to talk about, and uh, you guys have had some exciting times in your career, which is already pretty long and uh, outstanding. So I know our listeners are going to be real excited to hear about what uh, what you've been doing and what you got coming up. Cool. Now, you mentioned uh, before we went on the air that uh, you've got some new music coming up. So I don't know if you want to talk about that at the front end or the back end. Sure. Um, we can talk about it on both ends. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're, you know, we've kind of been on, and this I'm, I'm sure will kind of lead into uh, something that we do want to talk about is this release schedule that we've been on. We're on a six-week, every six-week release schedule since uh, – the middle of last year, basically. Wow. We've been dropping music on a regular basis, and uh, we've got one coming on uh, May 8th, which is just a little over just a week away. Corner, yeah. yep. So uh, we, we released a single, uh, what, five weeks ago, and we've got, uh, and that one is, um, has gotten a lot of uh, traction on Facebook. We can talk a little bit about that too, how we kind of promote the music through social media. Um, but we come right back. I mean, we're in the process of making a record, and this is Phil Levitt, by the way. Um, we were in the process of making a record, and we thought we'd have a lot more in the can by now, but then, of course, we got shut down. So, thankfully, we had uh, four songs that we had just gotten finished before everything stopped. So, we're kind of set up to continue to release music, and uh, we're going to go ahead and, and uh, drop a single on, the, uh, on May 8th, a song called We Got the Stones. We got the stones. Nice, nice, nice. So um, you, for the, those of us, uh, the listeners that aren't familiar with the kind of successes you guys have had, I mean, you guys go all the way back to Dada, and a lot of the listeners will be well aware of Dada and, of course, you know, uh, the song about Disney. <laughs> but uh, from there, you guys went, uh, opened up for Dada, right, as Seven Horse for a while, is that correct? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Like wear different outfits or put on a wig. Or... Actually, we did, we did wear different outfits. We uh, that was in uh, that was what 2012. Now we uh, I don't know Joe if you want to give some background on Dada and then we can kind of pick it up from from 2012. Yeah. Well, I mean Dada is a band that started. Uh, I, I started it with uh, my writing partner back then, uh, Michael Gurley, smoking hot guitar player. Uh, and uh, we sort of basically spent, uh, we were in a band right before Dada, which is horrible, horrible band. And it was just one of those things where we've been in bands all our lives and we, you know, how many times are we going to try this? What are we doing wrong? Why are all our friends, you know, in the same kind of group right. of, of people getting signed and we're not? And it really boiled down to one thing, songwriting. Yeah. So we spent, uh, instead of starting a band which is what you know if you're not in a band if you're a musician and you're not in a band 
especially when you're younger, you're just, something's wrong. You know, you don't, you know, the earth is tilted, things aren't right. It's a very needy situation. Um, so, but we decided to fight that fear and just spend uh, some time songwriting. And as we got better on that, we ended up getting a, a record deal, but then we really wanted to get back to, be, you know, being a band. So the hunt was on for the greatest uh, drummer in Los Angeles, and I found him uh, via uh, a person. I was, at the time, I was working in the mailroom at Geffen Records, which was like going to college for a musician. Um, I learned a lot. That was great. Plus, I met Jimmy Page. Um, and uh, someone in the publishing uh, division gave me Phil Levitt's phone number. She did say he's the best drummer in L.A., and I, uh, I you know, at that point, we were, you know, we tried everybody, it seemed like. And uh, we got together, the chemistry was right. We uh, figured out what we were doing and we released a record. First song we released, Disneyland was, it was our biggest hit. Oh. Ended up being the biggest one we ever put out. But that that was on IRS Records. And then uh, Dada subsequently made three records on IRS Records until they went out of business. Then we, uh, signed a deal with MCA Records. We made our fourth record on MCA Records, and then they went out of business. Um, so it was you guys that did it. We yeah. drove all kinds yeah. of record labels out of business. We didn't get down to like when people start talking about how did the record business start unraveling. There is a Dada pinpoint. <laughs> You know, I, lo I love when he tells this story, though. I, lo I love this story about us getting together because he always refers to me as the best drummer in Los Angeles. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's keep in mind that at this, at this point in time, uh, you know, Jeff Picaro was playing in Los Angeles. Uh, Vinny Caputo was playing in Los Angeles. I mean, there was a lot of... Those slouches? Amateur. But none, uh. of those, none of those guys were sleeping with this girl that he that he was talking to so that's kind of how i got into the band i didn't know that's how you make it in the industry i would have tried that a long time ago yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So she was uh she was one of my champions at that point and uh that's how we got together but um yeah that band had uh, had some early success with uh, as joey said with uh, disneyland and we ended up uh going out on a you know world tour as a stings support act for a while we did Crowded House in the UK, and uh, we did uh, we did Depeche Mode in uh, Portugal, and we did uh, uh, Izzy Stradlin and the Juju Hounds. I mean, I'm going down now a notch, but uh, <laughs> wait a minute, I'm, I'm having trouble just going between those last two bands. That's quite yeah. a swing. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, in Europe, you know how it is in Europe, man. The, the, the musical taste is so all over the board that you could be in a soccer stadium with Depeche Mode and open for them as kind of a pop rock thing. And it, and the crowd was, they were into it. You know, they heard us on the local What's that? Way more accepting. and, and, yeah. and The genres, it, it, it doesn't matter nearly as much. So people are music fans. They're, they they want to they hear something good. They don't care what it is, at least at that time. Um story by the way I'll, I'll tell you in a second go ahead Paul. Uh, but I was just you know just kind of just to give some perspective on some of the things we did back in the early days of our career which was you know we kind of got into that level of playing in arenas and uh, you know outdoor stadiums I mean that that Depeche, Depeche Mode show was in a soccer stadium and we did a couple of big outdoor gigs with Sting as well 
And so we had that kind of whole thing going pretty early in our career and kind of got spoiled by it because we were, you know, we climbed out of the van and got into a tour bus within the first year of being a, van, a band. It's very difficult to go back, which we have done, of course. But we thought it was going to go on forever. And then the record company started to go out of business and that was the end of that. Quite a, quite a ride though. You, you start from a mental concept of we're going to do some woodshedding because we know we need to to get successful. Oh, look, it worked, it worked really well. That's some seriously good woodshedding, people. Yeah. yeah. A little luck thrown in there. But uh, I was going to say about that Depeche. We played two shows in Portugal with Depeche Mode. And the first show was in a small Roman-built coliseum. Um, I'm not sure if that was uh, Lisbon or, or Porto. But um, anyways, we'd just gotten off the – finished the European leg of the Sting – run which was an incredible that whole sting thing was just that we could talk just about that for hours but we get off that and we get a phone call hey do you do you want to finish off this uh uh uh, uh couple of shows with uh, on a depeche mode tour it's like sure so we go there and at you know just like phil was saying we're kind of spoiled at that point we toured america with sting and europe with sting so we're we're feeling pretty good uh, we go, we're setting up, and um, one, of their, one of the techs for Depeche Mode came up to me and said, you know why you got this gig, right? I'm all, no. If it's that same girl, I'm going to be really upset. <laughs> he basically said that the other opening band quit. They got tired of being pelted with garbage. And I think I had a Sonic Youth t-shirt on, you know, from like Japan or whatever. And I'm all like, yes. <laughs> you know, I, it. I loved it. So yeah. I'm ready for it. And I tell everybody, be ready for it. Boom, we go in, we start playing our opening song. It's a 10,000, roughly 10,000 seat arena, essentially, right? Every single person in that place started bouncing up and down to all of our songs. We're huge in Portugal. We have no idea of that. <laughs> no one tells us. It's Portugal was kind of a, 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 back in the early 90s, it was sort of like America in the 70s, where it was DJ run. You know, there, it was an influencer thing. And there was a DJ at Radio Energia. Uh, and uh, they loved us. Wow. <laughs> no garbage. Wow. <laughs> In fact, people singing along, they weren't throwing garbage. It was great. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, it's kind of like when Frampton did his Frampton Live album, and he went in front of a crowd that he, you know, didn't know, and they just, the reception was incredible, and he's like, we had no idea we were going to get that. Wow, you had that experience. That's awesome. Yeah, there was a lot of great experiences in those early days. That was a lot of fun back in the early, you know, the 93, 94 was, uh, was a great time for us. And, uh, you know, then it was difficult to keep that going. The things started to change at the label. And, uh, you know, then you set the bar on what you're trying to do. Uh, you know, you set a bar pretty high with your first record. And there's all kinds of pressure to, to repeat the process. And it's not as easy as it looks, everybody. <laughs> and, uh, and um, you know, there's all kinds of internal things that went on at the label with the radio promotion department and all of the classic kind of disaster record company stories that you've heard about we went through all that stuff and then as joey mentioned ended up at mca as the president of irs records moved and took the job at mca he brought us with him to the label 
which on the surface seems like it would be a good thing because you're kind of the favorite of the president. But the upshot is, is that the staff who was there before the president came, they don't know who you are and they're not that into that. (laughs) They like to find the acts themselves, you know, so uh, that, that wasn't a great experience for us. And that was the end of our uh, major label career. And then shortly thereafter, the whole business imploded. And, uh, you know, we kind of found ourselves in a situation of not really having any clue on how to move forward. And the band went on hiatus for several years. I ended up, Joey moved to Seattle. I ended up going to uh, Vegas and joining Blue Man Group, where I played uh, for a couple of years and had a great experience out there. And, um, And then we got back together a few years later in a much more independent, it was kind of the beginning of what we're doing now, really. Um, Faced with no other options, we started to work more as an independent act and, um, you know, took it back out on the road and found that we still had an audience out there. And then fast forward up to 2012, which which you asked about, we took Dada out on a 20th anniversary tour. By that point, we had already started Seven Horse and we thought, well, you know, we, we didn't want to just retire Seven Horse to go out and do a a Dada 20th tour. So we thought, well, here's a great opportunity to expose Dada fans to what we're doing, what Joey and I were doing then. Is uh, Dada didn't have any new music coming out or anything. We were going out basically to celebrate, you know, a 20 year run. And uh, we thought, well, it might be cool to just open up for ourselves. You know, we came out as a two piece in different clothes on a different drum set because as a, in the two piece version of Seven Horse, the drums were right, right. down on the front of the stage. And in the the three-piece version of Dada, the drums are in the traditional trio spot. So we had two drum kits out there, and I'd come out with a with a bowler on, and uh, Joey's got a guitar on. People aren't used to seeing him playing guitar, and we would come out there, and a lot of times we'd hear about afterwards that people had no idea it was us, uh-huh. <laughs> which was really bizarre, you know, because we didn't think we looked that different. But for some people, they didn't they didn't put it together. Um, so when you did that, did you think of yourself as like you're putting on a different role and you're really being a different, I don't want to say the word character, but you know what I mean, a different, yeah. different person? Or totally. did you think of it as more a continuation of yourself going through? No, it, for me, it was, it's, you know, it's a totally different role for me because in, in, in Dada, you know, I'm the drummer. And, you know, a trio, you get a lot of room, obviously. As the drummer, you've got a lot of room to play and you're dead set in the center of the stage. We've got two guys on the and the wings a little bit so people can see you uh but you know in seven horse i'm kind of fronting it so um it's it's a totally different experience communicating with the audience kind of doing all that stuff um it was a it was a a lot of work for us i mean we would do 45 minutes come off stage change our clothes half hour later we'd go back out there and do two two more hours and um you know a lot of a lot of material and uh but we had a great time doing it. We got to play a lot. It was fun. Well, it would be psychologically very strange for, for, for me to imagine going out and here I'm being this new, fresh band where I'm starting this thing and I'm promoting it like crazy. And then, uh, uh, you know, 20 minutes later, I'm an homage to the old band as, a, as an anniversary gig. It's like, wow, that's, that's such a di- just juxtaposition of thought, let alone yeah. doing it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think you're right about that. We just kind of dove into it, like, because we just didn't want to stop. We had, we had really found something that we really enjoyed doing and we didn't want to 
we didn't want to quit to go and, and we wanted to we, we wanted to play in front of people because we had been out as a two-piece i mean when, when we got started we made a we made the first seven horse record in 2011 we put it out and we decided well we're going to get back out there and we got an opportunity to do some touring um but it was hard boiled you know down and dirty and it was just the two of us we had come off of touring with a in a bus with a crew and to get started on seven horse we climbed into a van and started hauling gear and doing it all ourselves again and so when the opportunity came when when this when the dada 20th came up we're like man we you know let's let's go out and do it and still get to play some seven horse stuff and enjoy it and then not have to work quite as hard on that level because we did we were on a bus and we did have a crew so uh, the logistics of touring was a lot easier because when we were doing, you know, eight hour drives and then playing shows and not sleeping and doing all the stuff you do when you're doing a, a, right. a low budget band tour with no crew and that whole thing. I mean, you know, we've, we've done the entire gamut of what you can do on the road. Yeah, but you did it in reverse. You were supposed to build <laughs> up, man, not ride right. a big <laughs> wave and shh, you know. Yeah. Well, you got to love it. Yeah. You only do that if you really love it. Yeah, exactly. We were just saying that to Travis Larson that somebody told me long ago, if you don't, if you're only in music to get money out of it, that's all you're going to get out of it. And, you know, all of it, all real musicians are really into it because you have to be, it's a compulsion. You got to be a musician one way or another. You've got to find a way to express those musical thoughts and be the conduit for whatever's trying to get out of you. And, uh, and it's nice that you guys didn't crash when the wave of the industry crashed that you got back on your horse. I'm sorry. It was right there. And, <laughs> and, you, and you continue. That's, that's to be admired for sure. So, so tell me this, since you've had, you know, extreme ups and, and medium downs anyway, what would be your, your that's a pretty good down. I gotta say, we've had some pretty good downs. I mean, when you get dumped by a label and you, you know, you basically are out of money and you got no, you know, at that point, uh, I don't want to cut you off, but I mean, just to give no, some perspective, you know, sure. in 98, when you get dropped in 1998, after having a four or five album career, before, 99, 99, don't rush it. Okay. 99. <laughs> um, so before the explosion of the internet and all that, I mean, we were totally lost on how to proceed. Okay. I mean, we looked and we went through a, a line of, you know, goofball managers and wannabe idiots who tried to thought they could be in the music business and had no idea what they were doing. I mean, we went through all of that afterwards, which was incredibly frustrating. Right. Yeah. I'm sure. So what was your, what was your biggest spinal tap moment? And you may have two different ones. So that might be interesting. Well, there's what you have to define spinal tap moment. Oh, you, you, you need to define it for us. Your own personal spinal tap moment. You, you've seen the movie. <laughs> you, you, oh, yeah. You've seen all the, you know. It's a, it's a spectrum of, of yeah. experience. I don't know, Phil. What do you think? Well, I mean, look, beyond losing your way to the stage, everyone's done that. I mean, who hasn't been in a club and not been able to find their way to the stage? That's happened all the time. Hello, be, Cleveland! Be, yeah, be, be beyond getting to the hotel and the rooms aren't ready, who's ha not had that problem? Beyond, uh, I mean, how about in, how about in, uh, in Seven Horse? I'll, I'll bring up uh, Nashville the first time we went there. First time we went to Nashville on the road, <clears throat> we had a show... And now we had, you know, we had, we were not on the radio in Nashville. It just got routed in somehow. And they, and the club, 
decided they were going to put us on at like six o'clock p.m. for an early set. Yep. And so we load all of our stuff in there and they open the doors at, you know, four thirty, five o'clock and no one showed up for the gig. <laughs> I mean, nobody. Okay. The tour manager has a friend in town. He gets on the phone. You girl, his friend is a female. He's got a female friend and her friend. They're hanging out. He's like, you guys got to get down here now. We have nobody in the crowd. So they come down. Bring 400 of your friends. Yeah, I mean, but we played the set and we played our full set, which was an hour, you know, plus to the bartender, the doorman, the two girls, the club owner lurking around. So now we finish. We give it everything we've got. Professional. We finish. We get off. We pack all the sh- all the shit up. The tour manager's like, "Okay, um, we're we're out of here." And the club owner's like, uh, "Well, hold on a second now, fellas. Um, you guys, you know, it cost us two hundred dollars to open this room up for this time. You owe us. You guys aren't going anywhere." So he wanted money at that point. So now, now our okay, tour manager's final tap moment. Yeah. So now our tour. I mean, they're like, "And we're not going to let you guys leave here without the money." You're like, "We're going to hold your gear. You go get this money." Because we didn't obviously make any money that night. Right. There's no money. You know, it's now, it's like 7.30, 8 o'clock. They're about to open up for another show. So my, the tour manager goes, all right, here, I'm going to give you my credit card. He, he gives them the credit card. You hold the credit card. I'm going to go, let me get the guys to the hotel. That's what he says. Let me get the guys out of here and get them back to the hotel. We'll pack up the gear. I'll go to the hotel. You hold my credit card. I'll come back and I'll, I'll pay you the cash. We load up the van, the three of us. It's just the two of us, and we have this guy with us. We get in the van, we drive off. He immediately calls the credit card company, just cancel that. Just cancel that. <laughs> <laughs> we left town. Well, that's a smart move. Yeah, it's a little tip for musicians out there. Veteran move right there. Veteran way, move. way too many experiences like that, Lou. Yeah, Especially I mean, on, the, on the grind circuit. You, you play to the bartender, and the one guy, they're like, man, I love you guys. So who's covering the night? Yeah. Like, man, I, I just showed up to play. Right. Like. I mean, that's like the old Blues Brothers thing. You know, you guys, you guys drank $400 worth of beer. We only <laughs> I mean, that was exactly what that was like. So I guess that's more of a Blues Brothers moment, not a Spinal Tap moment. But I mean, that kind of stuff happened all the time and uh, can still happen. You never well, know. People don't realize the... Um in the glamorous look, the, the lack of glamour behind the scenes sometimes that's just unbelievably difficult. You know, whether it's, you know, 300 takes in the studio or just trying to get out of the club with your own gear. Yeah. That is- yeah, it's, a, it's a wild, you know, it's a wild west out there for the most part. I mean, agents and contracts, these things are all, I mean, at this level, at the club level, it's different right. obviously on an arena level. I mean. Sting did not have any of those issues, you know, but, but at, at the club level, it's down and dirty. And I have a feeling that, um, you know, things are going to be changing a little bit uh, out there. Uh, hopefully, I mean, I don't know exactly how, but I think some of these promoters and some of these venues, we're never going to see them again at the end of this, uh, the end of this crisis. Which I should tell our listeners that are listening years in the future after this is all gone that we are, are filming slash recording this during the famous COVID-19 virus that hopefully will be a dim memory by then. So we should probably touch on that because it's, it's affecting everything and obviously the, even how we're doing this podcast. But one of the 
I keep looking for silver linings within this, right? And one of the things that I've thought is, well, even Sting and Depeche Mode and Def Leppard and whoever you want to think of, they're all home right now. We all have equal footing for the first time ever. Britney Spears has got nothing on us right now, right? You know, we're all exactly the same. So it gives everybody kind of a chance to start from square one and and make something of themselves in the interim. And I think that you guys, it sounds like, have been kind of leveraging the, some of this social media and modern technology anyway in recent years. So so tell us a little bit about how you've been doing that. Well, that, yeah, you know, about a year ago, I mean, we just going back, we, we Seven Horse started in 2011 and and we kind of, you know, what we knew about was the old school record business, even though it didn't exist as it was anymore. All those people, all those component parts, the publicist, the marketing people, the radio promotion people, all those people that used to work inside of all these labels. I mean, there are still obviously record labels, but not nearly as many as there were before. And a lot of the people that were working for all working for these labels went out on their own as independent contractors, hung a shingle out and said, you know, I'm a radio promotion guy or I'm a marketing consultant. That's kind of the most popular thing to be as a consultant. Of I'm sorry, you said a word I didn't understand. Radio? I, I don't know what that still is. A very popular, still a very popular medium to, to listen to music. Um, people, you know, I don't know about it as much right now because people are home, but in their cars, they're still listening to radio and it, it does carry some weight. But we, we pursued our project in in that kind of a of of a of a model of an independent record label kind of model, but yeah. but we're our own record label. But you've still got to have all these people. So we, you know, we, I went out on this uh, basically on the street and borrowed a bunch of money to start this from friends and family. I put a little put some money together to launch this business, and did it very much with the attitude of it's going to be a business. We're going to have a a company we're going to have insurance we're going to we're going to run it like a business but you need capital for that so we we borrowed some money and we used it to re write uh, record our first record and then uh, release and promote it by <clears throat> taking it to radio taking a single to AAA radio and hiring three or four people to work it at the format and uh you know yeah. marketing people and you hired the guy who worked disneyland that's right. We had, we, the guy, our old friend who uh, worked at IRS and broke Disneyland was on the first seven horse record. But all of these people required retainers. And, sure. you know, there's no, they, they guarantee nothing, of course. How could they? they they're just trying. They, they'll tell you that. They'll, they'll do their best and what kind of results you get. But, and we actually charted. The first single was uh, a song called Low Fuel Drug Run. And it, and it charted it into the top 30 at uh at AAA, which we felt pretty good about, but actually didn't really mean that much as far as exposure or, you know, opportunities to play because you're getting on radio stations that don't have huge listeners. You know, you're in secondary markets or. Sirius uh, XM, though. Sirius XM was a big one. It did get on Sirius XM. That was kind of the biggest get of that, of that uh, first record. Um, and, you know, it's great when you're on little radio stations in small towns that will support the music, but it's tough to get there on the road. You know, how can you get into this little town in Louisiana, you know, to play a gig? We'll go through there and visit the station, but there's not really a gig there. You got to get to New Orleans to, to play a gig or Shreveport or something. So we worked that form formula, though. And then we had a we had a, a boost when somehow, some way we got into the Wolf of Wall Street. On the, on the first record. That kind of changed 
the perspective for everything. Somewhere along the line, Martin Scorsese and team heard our song Meth Lab Zozo sticker that we did release to radio, but didn't really do anything. They were playing it on Sirius XM though, so maybe you heard it there. We never did. My personal favorite, by the way. Yeah. Love uh, it. That's the first track we ever wrote. Um, first one we recorded. You guys got a lot of luck with your first thing, don't yeah, you? Yeah, we're big on the first songs. <laughs> trying to follow that up has always been a problem. But anyway, the idea, we went on with this for several years, several records. We did, you know, three records with this format. Working with, uh, uh, even up to, you know, working through uh, The Orchard, getting a team together there, hiring people on, on retainer, spending a lot of money on publicity, marketing, radio promotion. And we were slowly making progress, but not anywhere. We could not break through because in order to really compete at that level at radio, you need a lot more money than the money we were spending. You know, you're competing against the Foo Fighters and the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Bruce Springsteen's record. The, 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 the slots are so tight to get in that if you're not playing on that level, it's really going to be tough to get into any kind of a, get your record played on a station that really carries a lot of weight. So about a year ago, we, uh, I met a guy out here. Uh, I just came across, uh, I came across him on Facebook, actually. He was a guy who was running an ad for, for his uh, ebook about how he kind of took a band in the UK called The Hunna and took them from a 250 seat room and within 18 months, they were doing two nights in a 5,000-seater. And I kind of was like, that caught my attention, you know? And I read his whole pitch about how the music industry is broken and the, 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 the entire construction of it is, is completely, uh, it's in some ways just immoral. <laughs> um, and uh, how he was able to leverage an audience that he built on Facebook and bypass all the gatekeepers and get to the point where they were all coming at him. Right. This got my attention. Um, and I checked it, you know, I, I looked at, uh, I looked at his numbers. I, there were some newspaper articles about him. So there seemed to be some kind of credibility there. And uh, I did what I rarely ever do, which is comment. Then I listened to the band. I listened to this band called The Hunna. I looked them up on Spotify and sure enough, they had, you know, 780,000 monthly listeners. I'd never heard of them before. Um, I listened to the music. I hated it. Uh, I commented on his Facebook post, which had incredible engagement. I mean, it had been out there for a while and he had thousands of people had commented and liked it. And I commented to him saying, first of all, I find this music unlistenable, but wow. congratulations on what you've achieved because that's very impressive and putting a post together like this that it's got so much activity on it. And he came right back at me. And instead of coming back at me with, you don't know what you're talking about or anything like that, he said, thank you for that. I appreciate that. And it turns out he was here in Los Angeles. He's from the UK, but he was here. So I got together with him. And over the course of a two hour meeting, the guy kind of blew my mind apart. And I spent the weekend thinking about what he had said about how you don't need these people that you're paying. You don't need radio promotion people or marketing people or even a publicist because, and the more you kind of, we went through it, the more I realized 
he's right what he's talking about because I've got a publicist who I'm paying $2,000 a month on retainer and she's out there sending submissions all over the country trying to get people to review our record. But guess what? There's thousands of records coming at, at, at these writers and you know, they, they, they couldn't be, they, they really aren't very interested in, in getting to our record. And I mean, she's out there on the corner, look at my project, look at my project. Unless you have got the best publicist in America, okay, then you got a chance. But there's a lot of people on a, on a lower rung that are just fighting so hard for the same space. And it's very, very difficult to get there. Whereas through social media, you can build an audience that belongs to you. You can, you can get all the data. You can get the email list. You can get the contacts. You can go right to them directly. You don't need the intermediary. You don't need somebody at Rolling Stone to write about you, to tell all, everybody that you're cool. You can just put your stuff out. And if you focus it and aim it in the right direction, you can create your own world and build your audience in a very organic way. It takes a tremendous amount of work but it can be done and you can leverage that to you can sell tickets directly to to venues you can rent your own venue you don't need a promoter you can rent you can four wall the room sell your own tickets keep all the money uh sell your merch and you don't need to be you know madonna you don't need to be that big you can be much more independent smaller a niche kind of product but just like products that we purchase off of Facebook all the time. I know for me, I, there was a, and it all, it all clicked into me based on this. There's this brand of uh, clothing that I, that I ran into on Facebook called uh, State and Liberty. It's a shirt, they make shirts. They make uh, dress shirts for athletic kind of bodies. And this was appealing to me. Yeah. <laughs> and they make it out of wicking material so you can sweat in it. And, I'm, and, I, and this hit me, like I'm, I play the drums. I like to dress well on stage, but Man, I ruin clothes. It, it just go through shirts like crazy. So I started ordering these shirts from them. I'd never seen their stuff in a store. I'd never read about it in a fashion magazine. I saw it on Facebook. And so that same kind of marketing approach, uh, why not in music? You know, why is music a product that has to go through this guy and that guy, and you've got to give the rights to this person, and you've got to, why can't you keep your rights? Market your product through a platform or multiple platforms and continue to cultivate and grow your audience in a, in a way that when you show up in their town, because you've run enough advertising through there and they've engaged enough, that they'll turn up at the show. And by that point, they're much more engaged with you than they would be if they read something in Rolling Stone and they just thought, oh, that's kind of cool. I'm going to check it out. You know, we've got people that are constantly engaging with us on social media. And by the time we turn up on stage, the relationship is so much stronger. And we always had that to a certain degree because we were very hands-on with our fans from the Dada days, but it's even gone, it's even grown from that with uh, Seven Horse. I mean, I just don't have a product that somebody, uh, some group of people are going to want. It doesn't matter what kind of music it is, yep. but you have to be, I, I don't want to, I don't, I'm not sure if, if quality is the right word, but, but it, you have to have something that some people, some, a group of people will like. You have to know your market. Yeah, there's, you've got to find the market. You've got to, I mean, but, but the fact of the matter is, is that just, you know, there's like 2 billion people on Facebook right now that are using the play. You know, they've been saying how Facebook is going away for years. It's not going anywhere. It's the, mo it's the most popular social media platform 
in existence. And if you look at, a, at, a, at an overall user base of 2 billion people, I figure we could probably find a million that like Seven Horse. And if I had a million fans that spent $100 a year on Seven Horse, that's $100 million. <laughs> so, you know, that's a, that's, a, that's a goal. I don't know that we'll ever get there, but that's the kind of idea that, you know, you're dealing with. It's like, you're not going to reach everybody in the world. You're trying to find certain people and there are techniques that you can use that every business uses to locate people that are likely to like what they do. That's what Spotify does when they put a playlist together for you. They're going to play me. They're going to show you music that they think you're going to like. And the more you do it, the more adept you become at it. And pretty soon you find who your avatar audience member is and you try to find people like that person and they have something in common. They like what you do. I mean, Spotify is the other ingredient to this. It's a, it's, it, it, it really, you know, when you start controlling your Spotify numbers and get on a quote unquote playlist, I mean, that's when the yeah, magic. I mean, the playlist at Spotify, you know, there's, there's the editorial playlist that they put together, but even more powerful than that can be the algorithmic playlists. Right. We've gotten a ton of play from those algorithmic playlists that are, People that have certain tastes, Spotify shows them, get, puts music in front of them that they're likely to enjoy. That can be our music. And we get, you know, 20, 25, 30% of our, of our uh, streaming comes from that. And that's just a component, you know, the, the revenue from, from uh, recorded music obviously isn't what it used to be. Although we do, you know, we do sell physical product to our audience. The songs now are more of a commercial than for the live show than they used to be, of course. It's a marketing. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're in a crossroads here with the, the crisis that we're under in that artists are really feeling it now because we can't go out and play. And they, they kind of put us in the box where you, you're going to have to go earn your money on the road and now you can't go on the road. So what what's the alternative <laughs> what are we going to do? I mean, in the old days, you could have them you could get some mailbox money coming for your, you know, some, your record royalties if you could get, or in advance. But, you know, that the, the playing field has changed. I'm hoping that maybe one of the upshots of, of this whole crisis is that we've got to start looking at some of these royalty rates and give people a chance to survive. Yeah. Give them a shot to stay alive and not have to be on the road 365 days of, of the year to, you know, live. Well, and I had a question uh, really quick kind of about the, the social media stuff because I have a marketing background and, and that's something that I've always thought was interesting and, and the, the concept of playing the algorithm versus playing against the algorithm. Uh, are you guys using more of the kind of like Facebook or uh, Instagram or Spotify design advertising to play into the algorithm or are you trying to just kind of be in the place at the right time and, and do it a little more organically? Well, we, we found that, you know, we, we've kind of played against the, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, uh, of prevailing wisdom that says that posts that have a lot of text in them, people won't stop and read it. Sure. Um, you know, we found that that is exactly Flip, flip side of what actually is true. If you write something that's engaging, I mean, we've put up some very long story oriented, uh, personal kind of stuff up on Facebook, multi paragraph tales from our career. 
that's some of the stuff that gets the biggest engagement. And what we do is we, we put all kinds of different stuff up and we find the winners. And when we get one that organically has some juice to it, then we put a little money behind it and amplify it and make sure that our engaged audience gets a chance to see it and interact with it. Because, you know, there's such a, uh, a, uh, a premium put on page likes, which to me is, you know, not really the metric that means anything because that's, it's a, it's such it's a, done. Yeah, yeah. It's not. page engaged numbers, people that are constantly talking to you and, and, on a post and commenting and then you answer back and then they comment and you've got to run it. Those people are, are your key audience members. Those are the people that really uh, are the people that you've got to take care of. I mean, and it's a responsibility to the band to, to, to maintain this relationship with the audience. It's and the you've got to work with it's the equivalent of talking to people after the show when they come up to the stage. Yeah, you do it after the show. You always, you, 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 you should. We always did back in the 90s. We were outside the bus all the time. Now you got to do it from home all the time. Yeah. Um, but you put stuff up. Not all of it works. You know, sometimes you put up something. It doesn't, it's a dud. You move on. Well, it's, it, it seems like it's simultaneous market research and marketing plans that's consistently evolving you react to situations and as soon as something starts to kind of dry up you change lanes and you do something different to to follow the the trend at the time. yeah i would agree with that i would agree with that i mean i think in the, in the last year we've spent a lot of time uh, we've had a, a just a, a a a thing we've been running on instagram to try to drive just a follow us on Spotify kind of ad that's been running on Instagram with a snippet of Meth Labs Oso sticker, an image, and a swipe up follow us. And our follow, you know, the trend line on our followers on Spotify is just, it's, it's in one direction. It's uninterrupted, you know, up 40% from that one piece of business, you know, and you just keep that out there and it just runs. It runs with no maintenance. It's just out there working for you. And we're so bringing people to Spotify. And then we see that, you know, streams on a daily basis are up. Uh, followers went from, you know, a, like I said, a 40% increase. It's a long-term plan. It's nothing, you know, the, 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 the downside is, is that to really do it on a large scale, you still need money. You know, this is still going to cost money to, to play this game. There isn't anything, you know, so now we're instead of giving it, though, to a guy who says, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to try to get you on these radio stations. And if it doesn't happen, there's nothing I can do about it. You know, basically, that's and through no fault of their own. I know these guys. They're good guys. They love music. They're old school guys. I love working with them. I, I love old school guys. You know, I've, we've been around for a while. These are music guys, you know, that are from the old days and are still doing it. But they're, they can only do so much. And if they fail, there's no recourse. They're, resp they, they res they're responsible to no one. Well, it's, it's John Henry versus the steam engine. Yeah. So, Valiant effort. And, and yeah, like there's, there's still, I feel like, at least from my limited perspective and, and limited knowledge, it's still a, a function of if the right guy's in the right place at the right time, it can be a boost and, and be kind of a spike but the consistent up, like you were talking about in the Spotify numbers, um, is something that's really hard to get from a, a person doing yeah. all of that work. I mean, look, I, you know, we'd love to be on the radio. Being on the radio is great. We've got a we've got a great relationship with a station in uh, in a little in Asbury Park, New Jersey. Mm. There's a there's a little 
radio station out there called WBJB. We have a great relationship with the guy who programs it. He plays everything we put out. It's a small market station. It doesn't have a, you know, it's got a small, it's got a, a weak signal. It doesn't have that many listeners, but it's great to be on the station because he plays everything for us. But we have to, we have to look at it in order to get where we're trying to get back to, which is into theaters and sure. get on a bus and go do this thing uh, on a larger scale. We've got to have incremental growth on a yearly monthly daily basis and it just takes a commitment to staying with that kind of approach and little by little you're going to spread and then if you catch a break then boom you can have a you can have a breakthrough but you can't really play for a break you know you can't wait for some you know we used to spend a lot of time i'm sorry i'm monopolizing this whole thing joey because i know you have something to say on this but we've we've been through this a lot where you know and musicians we do this, I know we're not the only ones. You know, you're, you're naive. When you come into the business, you're naive about the business. You, particularly back when we came in, you're living off of that fantasy of what you thought the 70s, 60s and 70s in the music business was like, the, the, you know, the great kind of rock star era. Um, you get disillusioned that that's a lot harder to attain, you know, for every Led Zeppelin, there were a hundred thousand bands that never got anywhere close. Nobody ever talks about them, you know. Everybody wants to be Led Zeppelin, but what about, you know, Harry and the Moondogs? They just never went anywhere. I love those guys. Yeah. So you get, you, you start to look for who is the savior going to be? Who's the guy? You know, there's always, this is my philosophy, there's always a guy. This is my thing that I always like to say. And it's true. We've seen so many, yeah. like, oh, there, here's the guy. He's going to be the guy who comes in. The cool thing about this thing that I, we started with Carl, was that he right off the bat was like, look, I'm not going to do this. I can show you how to do it, but you have to do it. You're Carl, gonna Carl was the guy you met on Facebook? That's yeah. right. He's, you know, right up front was like, I can share the knowledge with you because he had done it in the UK. He, kn he knew how to leverage all these things. And he got to the point where, like I said, they're in a 5,000 seater and they, they didn't, you know, they bypassed Live Nation to get in there they four-walled the building and had to cut their own side deal with Live Nation because as you get to that level, now corporations are starting to bear down on you. They don't like you when you start doing that stuff. Uh, but he had been through all that. And he said to me up front, like, you're going to have to work at this in order to do it. I can't create all this content for you. It's got to come from the band. It's got to be authentic. And, you know, this is there's a lot of social media consultants out there. And we had hired one. We had one on the payroll right before I met him. And she put up stuff all the time and uh, nothing was really catching fire. She put up kind of cool stuff, you know, photos and little pithy one-liners and trying to get people to have a few laughs or get engaged. It wasn't, wasn't working. She was doing her job. She had it all scheduled on a calendar and it makes you think like, oh, we're doing something. You know, there's a, there's a document that says what it is we're doing. But we went into it with uh, this other method. I didn't have any of that. We just started writing and putting up stuff that really was authentic and then following the ones that were getting engagement and spreading it, spreading it out to more people. And the, the, the kind of uh, the attraction of all that for people was much more than having some outside consultant create content and put it up and, and just take care of it for you. So, you know, the lesson of all this is that, man, you've got to take responsibility for your all aspects of your career. You, you want to be an artist, you know, you want to think of yourself as I'm, you know, uh, 
I'm a poet. I'm a songwriter. I'm a musician. I'm a player. I don't, I don't want to know about business. Well, that's fine if you're selling a million records, but who's doing that anymore? <laughs> you know, if you're a rock band and you've been around for a while and you're not going to sell those kind of numbers and you want to go out here and slug it out, you better take responsibility for everything you're doing and you better get committed to putting in the time and effort or else you just, you know, it's just not going to happen. Right. Yeah. You want to think as an artist that your art will carry you, you know, that I've created this, this art that I put everything into. And I, I was so obsessive about how perfect I made it, you know, to match what's in my head and I put it out and that should be enough. Right. And, and, you know, you don't like to think of Van Gogh having to go, hawk his wares on the corner you know you think oh he was just great but a lot of those famous artists even musicians from back then they didn't get famous until they were gone because nobody talked about it because they were not going out and promoting themselves and doing the marketing and it is kind of a tough mindset for a lot of artists to get into but you're right that's that's kind of the thing now i still but, have a hard time with it it's still difficult yeah you know? yeah but you do it you don't want to do this stuff you know you want to play that's what we that's what we got into this for. You want to play. But you gotta find a way to No, no, I was I saw your box light up. I want you to talk. <laughs> Maybe this is what you're gonna say. The thing is you do you do get to be the artist, yeah. but you have to be able to flip the business switch off when you go on stage and go right tap back into that because that really, you know, once they're in the room they're not looking at you like, wow, they've done really good business. <laughs> it still comes down to that primal thing where you've got to move them emotionally. And honestly, as a, as a musician, you want to be moved by, by what you're doing too. So you've got to get up to that little moment still. You know, and the other thing too, is that you got to, you kind of look at all of these other aspects, uh, the sales and marketing side of your career, it's just an extension of your, you've got to find a way to be artistic, to, to put your artistic self into that. It can't just be, you know, a hard sell on everybody. It's got to have some soul to it. You know, it's got to have some, it's got to have that connection to who you are as an artist or else it's not really authentic anyway. So, you know, um, my, my approach on it was to start sharing some stories from even before Dada got together, run-ins with, you know, I had, I had, a, I had a weird uh, dinner one time with Bob Dylan. I met George Harrison in the men's room at Warner Brothers Records. Uh, I played golf with Bill Murray one time. These were all stories that I've been telling to people for years. And when I wrote them out and put them up on our Facebook page with a photo of Bill Murray, people really got interested in, in, in that. And so you give them a look into who you are and what is the, what is the basis for everything you're doing now? And you somehow you tie it all together. So you're not looking at it as like, oh, I have to do this again. It's, it, it is part of your art. You know, your life is, is your work of art. Selling a, it's the idea almost more than anything else. Like the, your music can be good and, and realistically no one, no one can write music that absolutely everyone's going to like. Exactly. But the if you're selling the idea of what your music means or the product i mean it's you know shoes is always a good example that i run back to you know shoes are shoes they do what they're going to do and some are more appealing than others to certain people but 
you know, Nike isn't selling that particular shoe. They're selling an idea of what the shoe is going to make you feel like. And it's the same kind of thing, especially with social media engagement. It's you're selling the idea that this band is something that's cool to be a part of or as a community or something like that. You're creating a tribe around not only the sound, the aesthetic of the, of the band, what it stands for, um, what's important to the members of the band, the relationship. You know, that's something that I've liked to focus on because when I was a kid, you know, and I loved the Beatles, um, I didn't just love, I love the music and everything, but, I, but when I look at a picture of the Beatles, I always, what always appealed to me most was like, look at those guys, how together they are, you know? Yeah. I want to be in that. I want to be with people like that. I want to have that in my life, that relationship with people. And I, you know, maybe it was because of how, uh, you know, my, my family split up when I was young and I was looking for that connection. And I saw that in a band. It's like, it's so much more, obviously your songs have to be great, but there's so much more to a band and what you can uh, show people via the vehicle of a band than just the music. It's like, how do people relate to one another and stay together? I mean, we've got a 30 year partnership going here and I'm constantly pushing that out there because I think that's a big part of our story. You don't see that every day. I mean, certainly there are some big name legacy acts out there, but you know, I look at the Rolling Stones and I go, that's what I want to be. Obviously you're not going to ever be as big as the Rolling Stones, but to have the longevity that is possible if you keep doing it. You know, if you can manage all the pitfalls and the, the uh, roller coaster ride that is the music business and even just being creative together, that to me is a big part of it. And I want to share that with people because everybody wants to get together and find that, you know, that connection with other people. And, and that's what a band is about. Well, that's one of the things that I liked about you guys. The first time I saw you, I don't remember which picture it was, but as you said, you like to dress really nice on stage. And that you, you guys have such a different look. I mean, you're clearly friends, but just like Trey and I have very different looks. And just like the Beatles having Ringo in the same band as, you know, as John Lennon, you're like, how can these guys be friends? They don't look like they'd be friends. And, and you want to find out more about why are they friends? You know, and that's kind of cool because it, it automatically shows you a sense of community, which is the point of music anyway, and barriers being broken down and acceptance being given. And, you know, that's... That's one of the things that I've, I've liked about, like Cheap Trick, when Cheap Trick came out and it's like Rick Nielsen is in the same band as, you know, Tom Peterson. What? How can these guys get along at all, you know? And ironically, you see somebody like David Lee Roth and Eddie Van Halen and you, and you think, well, those guys are cut from the same cloth. And <laughs> as it turned out, not so much. So that backstory is, is so fascinating. It's, it's like when you watch a, a movie about, a sports team. You don't care hardly at all about whether they win or lose. It doesn't really matter. What you really care about is the interpersonal relationships of the team. And then now you see the struggle through a different perspective and a different lens and, and their successes through those different lenses. And that's the fascinating part because it's a window into other lives, like watching a sitcom. It's, it's a window into other people's experiences. And I think we're kind of eating that up more, yeah. so, more so now than, than three months ago, but still. Which, uh, I agree with everything you just said. <laughs> hey, I, I love that. You're so like my ex-wife. <laughs> so let me ask you this. You mentioned algorithms and, and um, Spotify. Do you have success with Pandora? Because, of course, they're algorithm-driven, and they're one of the first ones that did that. 
Yeah, uh, I think we've had a lot of people, I've heard from a lot of people that they heard us on, you know, Pandora and we've done, you know, we've, we've worked the platform a little bit by recording some, uh, you know, you can put in your own kind of back announces on, you know, when people get to your, to get to your songs, you can, re, you know, you can record a little, hey, this is Phil from Seven Horse. I remember, I, you know, I did that. You know, this is our new one that, that you can submit that into uh, Pandora. We've done that a little bit. So, um yeah, we've got people finding us through, you know, a variety of platforms and you really want to be everywhere. You know, yeah. the idea is to be ubiquitous everywhere. Oh, you know, I'm on Pandora. There's seven horse. I'm on Facebook. Oh, there, there's seven horse. I go to YouTube. There's seven horse. It takes a lot of effort and, and you need a financial commitment to, to really work all of these platforms. And we started instead of trying to be everywhere at once and do it to a, mediocre degree we decided to focus more on facebook initially because we had a little bit of a base there and we figured we could build it off of that eventually for this thing to continue to grow though and i think it's a job that's bigger than just the people in the band can do we're going to have to then add some more people to the team and and start you know because we fired everybody to get this started we just cut everybody loose that we had publicist marketing consultant uh radio guys everybody got fired social media consultant everybody went out hey, it was just like those record companies you were at yeah everybody got fired exactly except this time we got to stay <laughs> uh, but eventually you do you know you can't do it all alone you you can start alone and it's good to do that it's good to break it down to the bare minimum and re and build a new thing that you have control over and then you can start to bring people in instead of relying all, all on all these people to get you to the next place you build your own thing and then bring some people in to help you take your thing to the next level. And so, eventually to work all those platforms, you're going to need more people. And speaking of platforms, I wanted to ask you about, so you've had success with Wolf of Wall Street. We know that. And you also had some success in two places that I was personally very interested in. One was the Grand Tour because it's my favorite TV show. So the fact that you had, what, two songs there, I think? Mm -hmm. Two songs in there. And you were in Far Cry 5, you know, and I'm a big gamer, as is Trey. So those are everybody that is thinking about how to generate revenue and success in, in today's industry goes. Synchronization is a big to-do. That's that's obviously a great way to get known. I've, I've learned to follow quite a few bands from playing video games and hearing them a few times in the background. I bet you're going, well, who is that? I like that song. And then, you know, we're off and running. So how did you, how did you guys manage to get in those situations? That, that one's pretty easy actually. Uh, and that is kind of the only company we're running with right now. It, that can't, that comes down to Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, we, again, we do not know how we got into Wolf of Wall Street. I'm not even know. I was at Costco buying coffee and wine, which is what I do. Um, and um, waiting in line, I get a, a, an email saying, it was from some lawyer saying, uh, Martin Scorsese wants to license the song, for Wolf of Wall Street, which by the way, I live in Seattle now, back when I lived in LA, of course I would have known just by seeing the, the variety, you know, and the, the reporter and all those magazines that you, you know what the next Martin Scorsese film, but up in Seattle, when you're buying wine and coffee at Costco, you don't know what the next Scorsese movie is. So I'm just like, oh, this is some kind of scam. It's, it's, it, it's 
it's tugging somehow speaking of algorithms it figure out every way that they can <laughs> so i text phil i sent it to him i said is this real that's all i said and he got right back to me he said yep and so i contacted the person who ended up being um this very nice woman uh who was clearing all the music for martin scorsese and it's the same girlfriend <laughs> this is what she drops on me though um and i'm in the costco parking lot talking to her at this point because as soon as he says get in touch with her boom okay fine um she's all so here's the deal martin scorsese cuts his movies to the music and right now you're you got 13 and a half minutes in this thing and I'm not saying you're going to get all that. You probably won't. I'm not saying you're going to get any of it. But we need to license 13 and a half minutes. The song's three and a half minutes long. Yeah. Um, it, and she goes, all I can say is you need to come up with a price by the end of the week. And we'll let you know somehow, uh, you know, you're either going to be in the movie or not. That's it. So he puts us in a situation where we're, we wait all summer long and then the movie gets bumped and we're like losing our minds. But before you get to that, though, the, yeah. the, 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 you know, the, that idea of you've got to come up with a price for this. Yeah, and that, was, that was what I thought. I went, oh, gosh, it's like fishing. Yeah. Have no and, idea. So yeah. I, started, I started making some calls around town, you know, to, to, to various people. And I got myself to uh, – film composer, a friend of mine. I, I ended up, you know, talking to an agent at uh, William Morris who handles, who handles uh, some people there. And he said, oh, I can do the deal for you if you want, but, you know, I'm going to need commission and I don't know what you're going to get. I mean, and I started to get advice from people. And I mean, literally it was like, you know, from the, the spread on, on what I got was basically like, I don't know, a hundred thousand dollar spread <laughs> was, the, was the area from like, here's the low end and here's the high end. And you can ask for any of this. And, and, you know, but they were like, but, but don't come in too high. Cause if you come in too high, they're not going to negotiate with you. They're just going to pass. So yeah. you better get it right. Five dollars. You know, I mean, we would have done it for free, you know, at the, at the, oh, certainly yeah. at that point. Dude had just said, we want to use the music, will you let us have it? We probably would have said yes. Yeah. So Come and massage your feet while you listen to it, Mr. Scorsese. Yeah. So I took all of that information that I got from a variety of people, and I kind of went, all right, I'm going to go here. And we, we gave them that number. And they said, okay, we'll do it. <laughs> and that was, nice. that was it. Wow. Yeah. Oh, so anyways, so we get in the movie. Movie comes out, we continue on with our lives as musicians. We're working on, we're in Portland doing a photo shoot for our second record. And we, was it a, a yeah, we got a phone call, right? Mm -hmm. And the woman goes, I just saw Wolf of Wall Street in the theaters. I heard your song. I waited to the end of the movie to get your credits. I found your number and I'm calling you. I work for a sync licensing company up in Canada called, they're called Third Side Music. And um, she started laying out a rap on us and me and him were like, I don't know if we just finished taking pictures and we're about to go drinking or what, but it was kind of like, this is interesting. But yeah, uh, yeah. anyways, we signed a deal with them and they're now our best friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're the ones who got all the, Grand All the named off, it was because of them. Yeah. Wow. So that, 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 that's been a great relationship. Oh my uh, God. That, that, 
is a gamer. And I like to like go whenever there's a, a game, because I, I, my thumbs hurt too much. To, I, I can't do that. I'm not coordinated enough to do that. I tried getting into the car games because I'm a big Formula One fan. And it just so, it was like playing golf. It's just so frustrating. Anyways, uh, I just throw it by her and she always goes, she gives me, tells me everything about the people that did it and blah, blah, blah. That's a good one because of this and that. So that's how I find out if it's a, a good thing or not. That's wow. cool. Yeah, that is very cool. So we kind of lucked out with them because they, they turned out to be a great company. And you do need, for sync, uh, I know there's some, you know, ways to do it, uh, like we, we use TuneCore for uh, distribution yep. as an aggregator. I think they may have some kind of a feature on there where you can get them to submit stuff or sync. But I think, you know, there's a lot of scams out there, pay to play scams for, for sync licensing. Um, I mean, I've run into some people that, you know, they're going to want a piece of the publishing. And, you know, I mean, it's all a negotiated thing, of course, but uh, these guys turned out to be really straight shooters. Maybe it's because they're Canadian. I don't know. It's because they're Canadian, right? Yeah. yeah, they turned out to be actually really cool human beings and great to work with. Yeah. And uh, they do a pretty good job. I mean, they also they, they have a huge catalog of songs that they represent. So, you know, you're always trying to make sure you're on the front of their, the top of their radar. That's, that's the same kind of deal that you have to do at record companies. You, you know, you have to keep people, you have to be in mind. That's the number right. one thing. You've got to be in mind. So, in order to be in mind, you've got to create stuff and turn it in. You've got to keep feeding the machine. I mean, that's kind of a theme for the thing overall, is you've got to keep feeding the machine. If you, if you make a record and you think it's great, then you sit back and you don't do anything for two years. Like if we left it at Meth Lab Zoso sticker, it wouldn't be anything now. You know, I mean, we're still waiting for that song to come back around. Like that's going to have another big moment, we, we hope. But right. when? We don't know. We've got to keep feeding the – we've got to keep creating – that's the number one thing. Keep creating, keep putting stuff out there. And I just also want to say that if I sound like I know what I'm talking about regarding this approach on social media, it's only because I've learned whatever I know on the fly here as we've been doing it over the last year, because I didn't come into this. I mean, I was getting ready to get off of Facebook. I'm one of those kind of people like, I don't need this. I don't want to be on social media. And then I, instead of going that way, I was like, oh, I'm really in this. I'm going to get deeper into it. And it was a hard one for me. But um, like they say in The Godfather, this is the business we've chosen. So, well, you, you know, you've got what? Uh, Meth Labs also stickers got what? Almost 7 million listens on Spotify. Yeah. I mean, that's a ridiculous number. Pretty good. You don't make a lot of money for that, but it's pretty good. Right. You know, it's no. pretty, that's a lot of. You get known, you get heard, you get a community, you build your tribe, right? I mean, that's a. You build your tribe and you keep going, you keep going to them and trying to build and, and expand it. And yeah, it's a great, it's, it's a lot of people have listened to that song. It's pretty incredible considering there's no record label. There's, you know, there's no team behind it. It's just us really. So it, it's law of averages, really, especially if you're, if you're constantly feeding content, you know, you can have five songs. They're all really good, but one of them is going to stick with somebody that's just, again, in the right place. They can go, yeah, they've got something perfect for this, but right. you're never going to get that if you're not constantly. That's right. Yeah, or in sync. Yeah, in sync yeah. for sure. It's a numbers game. Absolutely yeah. true. I mean, you've got to, you know, and I, and I don't know, maybe Third Side thought we were going to give them 40 Meth Lab Zoso stickers, but that's not really what we do. You know, we, we allow ourselves a range of, of sound and approach to music. And sometimes your thing is going to be just right. 
you know, we, we gave him a stomp clap kind of country blues riff with a crazy vocal on it right at the moment when, you know, it was the right thing for Martin Scorsese. That, that, that's what he wanted. Uh, and then following that, several years of, after that, you heard all kinds of songs that sounded like that. I mean, the, the stomp clap kind of white blues thing was all over the place. Black Keys were doing it. Um, and it was getting licensed, you know, left and right. But we just released a track right after the, I think it was on April 3rd. We had recorded a song, <clears throat> no, March 27th, we released this. So it was only a couple of weeks after uh, the lockdown started here in Los Angeles. And the, the crisis was really kind of heating up. It hadn't even spread across the whole country yet as far as the stay-at-home orders. But we had come out of the studio a few weeks before with this song called Walking Free. And, um, you know, you talk about being on time with something. It just so happened that this thing was, it just sounded like this situation. Yeah. It was right for this situation. So we have a guy that um, we've been working with a long time who does a lot of the art for us. This guy named Bo Caldwell, who lives in St. Louis, that um, is kind of the last sole survivor of our team from, from the beginning. He does the covers and, you know, helps with ads and does design stuff. So I just sent him an email and said, hey, man, we need a video component for this song. And because, uh, you know, you want to be up on YouTube and uh, and that's a great way on Facebook to 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 get traffic is to embed your video in Facebook. Cause, you know, obviously all these platforms don't want you to leave the platform. Right. They want you to right. stay there. So, you know, for people out there listening, if you link your YouTube link on Facebook, you're not going to get the kind of engagement or the, the kind of uh, right. uh, views that you do if you embed your video on Facebook because Facebook doesn't want you to go to YouTube. They want you to stay there. So. We, I said to him, look, uh, can you get me a video that, you know, that uses, we, we do a lot of stock footage stuff because it's free, it's cheap. Yeah. Just give me empty streets, you know, just empty streets. And so it's a montage of, of uh, you know, lockdown. It's, yeah. It looks like the lockdown. And we put that video up on, uh, on Facebook and it's been in front of, you know, over a million people have, uh, have looked at it. And it hasn't really cost us that much money to get that kind of spread because it's had 600 shares. You know, people, right. people are spreading it around and that's what you're hoping for, that kind of natural or organic viral kind of uh, spread. Maybe we don't use viral. Right. I was just going <laughs> to to coin a phrase. Yeah. But sometimes, I, this goes back to what you were saying, sometimes you're on time with, with, with something that just resonates. Sometimes you're not. Sometimes, you know, you think you've got the best song you've ever written and you like you put it out and it just doesn't happen. You can't figure it out. And it's just like it didn't land at the right moment. It didn't have the right thing. Like this particular song has got this, got this groove. You know, we played around a lot with the groove and it's got this kind of um, thing, kind of sympathy for the devil, kind of Latin sort of inspired beat. And the thing blew up in South America. Got all kinds of people uh, from Brazil, Argentina, that have seen this video and liked the song. So it's a whole influx of new fans that maybe didn't even know who we were. May, they, they may now be find, finding out about Meth Lab Zozo sticker. Is it just people that speak Portuguese that are really into you guys? Is that what it is? Just some connection with the Portuguese yeah, culture, right? That's just right, that. Brazil. Yeah. 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 It's um, it's fascinating that you've had so many different experiences and seen 
both sides of it, really the, the DIY side, you know, it, it, to an extreme level and the totally taken care of side that we all aspire to that you would love to get back to if, if the world ever gets back to that at all. It's, um, it's, it's so inspiring to see that you can come from sting, you know, playing with sting, which in my mind is as big as you can get, you know, if you're, unless you're sting to, to, to having this attitude of you got to make it happen. You got to keep it out there. And that, that work ethic is just so wonderful to see in musicians, you know, nowadays, that's very, very cool without any entitlement attitude. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, we feel like we've paid a lot of dues, you know, we've, we've, we've paid a lot of dues over the years, but, uh, and, and there would be a, a, you know, for some people you might have uh, an unwillingness to go back there to, to that level. You know, when we got, when we climbed back in the van in 2011 and we looked across at each other and we're like, can't believe we're doing this again. But I actually, I also have to say that was some of the best. I had the most fun on those yeah. Getting back to that level was so great to have the freedom to just go out there and do it. Yeah. I, I, it gave me a whole new perspective on how fortunate we are to work together, to, ha to be partners, to travel together, to have an audience that is interested. And uh, it was really hard, you know, to, to hump the gear and do all that night after night and to drive all those miles. But I'm glad we did it because it, 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 it hardens you. It, you know, it's like you gotta, you gotta earn your bones all over again as a band. If you start a new band, you're, you know, I, I, there was a part of me that thought, well, we're just gonna bring everything with us that, you know, from Dada, but in fact, not everybody came along for the ride. You know, it's, you know how it is with bands. We all have our favorite band. And do we, I'm, I, here's my police t-shirt. I yeah. always liked the police more. I mean, I love Sting, but I like the police more. You right. know, I, 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 I love the Beatles. I would, I've seen Paul McCartney, but I like the Beatles more. Um, and for, you know, a lot of Dada fans, that's what they want. And I respect that that's their band. And, you know, it's weird for me to talk about it like that because I'm in it, but, but I get it. You know, you can't expect everything. We, we kind of had to lose that sense of like, Oh, we're, we're at this level because right. we can go out and play a thousand seater as Dada and sell it out. But as seven horse, we can't do it. You know, we can't, we can't do that yet. But when you fill a room now as Seven Horse, you know you did that. You're not riding on anybody else's coattails in any way. You created that, and that's your people that are there. And that's got to feel amazing. awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's the best feeling. But, um, you know, I don't think I, – I, I'm sure. I mean, I know him pretty well. I, I think he would say the same thing, that everything we've been through – uh, there's something valuable about it. Not that I wouldn't necessarily want to do it all again, but every, all the ups and downs along the way, there's something to be, to be learned from that. There's something you can use. There's something that you can build upon. I mean, you know, going back to the sting days, that was <clears throat> the, the, a great experience of seeing how it's done at the highest level to experience right. that at that point in our career was pretty incredible because we were just playing clubs, you know, Dada was a club band and we were out there. I mean, I remember, you know, running into the gin blossoms in, in 91 or 92, probably when we first got on our bus and those guys rolled up and we're looking at our bus, like, wow, you guys are on a bus. I mean, that's how we all were. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're rolling into the Greek theater with sting and seeing the scale of what they're doing and how it's done on a professional level. His performance 
on a nightly basis? What kind of uh, dedication and the level of consistency that he would do his show at was so inspiring to me. I never forgot that. I think about that all the time when I go out there because you could see that for him, it was like, there's people out here that have never seen me before. Yeah. And I've got to, the I've got to live up to a, a yeah. thing. You know, I've got to live up to this image of myself. And it's a great attitude to have that you go out there and you, no matter what, I mean, I saw him 10 minutes before showtime yelling at somebody and pissed off and, you know, having a bad day. And he'd say, what's going on? Uh, you know, and he, and then he'd go out there and it was like, Oh, well, it's, it's that guy. You know, yeah. I love that. You see that in still, even in McCartney, you know, as, as successful, as godlike as he is, you know, he's still working it. He's out there selling it. You know, even when you saw Mick in the, in a four square setup, much like we're looking at right now, yeah. he was selling it. He was, you know, enthusiastically doing it. Right. The other guys, maybe not. Not quite as much, but Mick was there. He was in the moment, you know, and that's, that's an entertainer, right? That's a real entertainer. That's, that's what you want to be. That's what you aspire to be. And then that was a, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, was been able to take from some of these experiences um, that is always useful. You know, that's, that's just so inspiring. Of course, that's, that kind of leads into the only, the only question I had that we hadn't really covered was when you go from, Sting and Depeche Mode, and you're playing these huge arenas. You have a certain level of um, groovy. Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, sound quality and production level. Um, since it is kind of a, a, a at least somewhat gear related podcast, how do you kind of reverse the you know, because it's like a drug, you get used to that certain level. How do you go from doing that and doing everything to go into a back kind of back down to a club level and still being happy with your production level. Like what are you guys using as a two piece to fill the room and make everything sound like, you know, yeah, we're a club band, but we know what we're doing. Uh, what are you guys using for, uh, for gear, for live sound and just your personal favorites for uh, guitars and drums and things? Well, I mean, we got to start with by saying we're not going out as a two-piece anymore. Well, I, you know, I wanted, okay. to, I wanted to start, though, on that. I wanted to go back to that. When we were a two-piece, when we yeah. first put this thing together, we, we went out with a very simple setup. Okay. And the only real uh, – I mean, it was a couple of guitars, you know, an amp, the, the, the first iteration of the pedal board, the drum set, and I had – uh, a little vocal effects processing thing. The uh, is vocal. Uh, 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 see, I'm not a gear guy. Like the voice, no, live, guy. Like the voice <laughs> live thing from TC or something like that. The TC, yeah, it's T, TC. Uh, like Oh, yeah, it's the uh, the uh, the green one, which is a doubler. I, yeah. I started using that right away, and the yellow one, which is the compressor. So yeah. I wanted the doubler because in the on the first record. We did a lot of bullet mic and a lot of um, processing on the vocals because it was my first record as a lead vocalist and I was, you know, uncomfortable singing. Right. So we, um, we always were processing the vocals. So I didn't want to go out there with just a crystal clean vocal. I wanted it to be thicker. And so we used the doubler and that really served the purpose. It also had an octave down on it right. and that gave the voice uh, some, some depth, obviously. And, you know, I just use a little bit of it, do sure. it from right there at the drums. Um, all the house gear, you know, uh, we got on in-ears. I was on in-ears right away, right? You right. were not. No, um, but I am. 
I got on in ears early because I found that as a drummer, I could not, I couldn't handle it uh, back there trying to sing lead for the entire yeah. show. I needed to be able to really monitor myself. I needed the clarity. So I got on in ears, uh, you know, JH audio, and I've had multiple pairs of those. Right. And uh, that was it. And then, then as it progressed, and what is it is now? It's a four piece when we okay. when we play. We've added a, we added a bass player, and uh, just this last year before we got shut down, we added a, a keyboard player because we started to do more on the records. You know, we the first record was real stripped down. There was a moment where we were three piece before yeah. four piece. Yeah, we okay. did a we, we did a broader tour as a as a as a three piece. I mean, initially it was like it was just the two of us and the guitar, and the bass drum would carry the bottom end. We had a, yeah. a lot of bass drum in our mix. We got, as a matter of fact, we were out with Kenny Wayne Shepherd. We, we supported Kenny Wayne Shepherd and, um, as a two-piece. And we got into uh, this opera house in, uh, in um, Delaware. Beautiful building, gorgeous opera house, you know, that is designed for acoustic music. You're not sure, supposed sure. to even bring a microphone into a room like that, really. But they're, they're doing shows there now because, you know, opera isn't what it used to be, I guess. Yeah. But it was a gorgeous room. But man, I mean, the room was live. And, and our guy, we had a sound man with us at that point. And so we're doing our sound check and he starts to push the PA with the bottom end, you know, for the bass drum. Yeah. And these guys flipped out. I mean, that guy came running to the console, like, you gotta, you're gonna blow this place up, you know? Yeah. Because that would be part of our mix, is a lot of boom right. boom in the bottom, because we didn't have a bass player playing with us. So we had that space for it. Right. Uh, then we added, went to a three piece, and that allowed uh, Joey to not have to carry so much on the bottom. Right. And, um, and we didn't have to push the bass drum so much in the mix, but it was a cool sounding band as a two piece, yeah. just drums and guitar, you know? But as we progressed and made more records, we couldn't help ourselves. We were into production. We started adding more stuff. And then you get into that trap where it's like, well, I, I, we can't do this on stage. You know, we want to be able to recreate. Well, and, and you don't want to write with the live, you know, as an artist, you don't want to write like, oh my gosh, I can't do this live. Right. Cause that's no fun. Well, yeah. I mean, initially it was like, well, maybe we're going to just approach it as it's a guitar drums band. And so all the records will just be that kind of thing. And we got tired of that. You know, we, right. even the black keys got tired of that. They didn't, they stopped doing it, yeah. you know, so, and they did it a lot longer than we did. So we went ahead and we're like, well, our, what we really would like to be is like a, a, a kind of a stones kind of approach where it's guitar drums. You've got, you know, that kind of rock and roll piano going and it could get, you know, it could get bigger. You could have backing vocals. It could have a horn section. It could have all kinds of stuff. We've stopped so far at a, at, at a four piece, which is a great for a uh, great lineup for us. Um, the guitar rig is a whole other thing and you should talk about it. As well, as the rig, it was the, uh, the um, approach on guitar because it was just us two at first, it really worked as much droning as possible was going sure. a lot of open tunings uh, were, you know, you can just kind of keep it going like that. Uh, so droning was kind of a, a real important thing at first. Uh, and then um, also it's just as far as the sound goes, I mean, first off I had like, when we recorded the first record, I was so psyched. I got this matchless uh, lightning 212, just sounded so good in the studio. As soon as we got into rehearsal, you know, Phil is not the quiet drummer. Um, sure. He is just laying it down. It was like, oh, I'm in trouble. This thing is just, <laughs> it's just not going, it wouldn't go loud enough. So 
I ended up getting a, a mattress Clubman, which was good. And then I graduated. It's like, I need more. So I got, I got a, uh, um, I started running two amps. I got a Bogner uh, Shiva 20th anniversary, which is, uh, I mean, both those amps are awesome. It's got the KT80. One, one of my favorite amps, yeah. Oh, it is so, I didn't go in. It's the funny thing was, I was just looking for a better 2x12 for my matchless. You know, because mm -hmm. I, I, it's not that the two by 12 was bad that I had, but I was looking, I started reading about, I wanted one with like, that was ported. So just, I was looking for every little ounce of bass I could squeeze out of it. And I ended up starting hearing this Shiva amp. And when I walked in, I called them up. I just said, Hey, you know, I'm always trying to get an artist deal. Phil taught me that. It's like, just make the, make the phone call. You might get it. And so yeah. far, it's like, every time I do it, I get an artist deal. It's like, yes. I've learned my lesson. So I go down there and the guy, this guy named Charlie down there, who is kind of a badass guitar player, he's just sitting there playing through a Shiva and I'm like, what the hell is that amp? And yeah. he goes, one man. And I went in buying it, you know, trying to buy a 212 and I walk out buying a two. I got the 212 because it's great. Right. But that amp is great. So now I run uh, those two. I run the, the Clubman and the, uh, the Shiva. Then we ran into some other issues where it was like when we're playing smaller clubs, then that's a lot of real estate. We tried stacking them. And then, you know, I ran one night with one amp and it's like, I can't do it. I got to have two amps. So I ended up selling some, I sold a, a, a Telecaster uh, that I had to, uh, and uh, some other bits and pieces. And I got kind of mini versions of that. I got a, a, a 112 Bogner with uh, uh, EL34, so it's it's 80, 90 watts. And then I got a, um, a matchless, um, I'm spacing out on the name of it, but it's not a hand-wired, it, which I'm, you know, so nerdy on that kind of thing. I was like, what, it's not hand-wired? Yeah. He's like, just, you've got to just try it, just try it. I don't know that I can continue this interview if he's playing a non-hand-wired <laughs> I, mean, I, I might just have to go, I'm sorry. <laughs> So uh, it's actually pretty, I mean, it's amazing. I actually, we track with that matches now. Yeah. Um, are you running in stereo or are you running mono? No, mono, just mono. Everything goes through. And, and I, every once in a while, like uh, you, I'm enticed by this, not so much stereo, but half wet, half dry. Sure. The sure. problem with that for us is that a lot of times I got one amp turned backwards or at least one cabinet turned backwards just so, you know, it, the, the, the face melting and the dental, you know, work coming loose on the people in the audience was just, it was just a little much sometimes. Right. Um, not for me, but uh, for the, right. I, I, I do it for the fans. I for do the it. opera house, for the old opera house. You yeah. don't want, you know, the gargoyles falling and stuff. Right. So those are, those are basically the amps and, uh, and the guitars. I, I, for the open tunings, I, I, I've got a, a Gretsch. I got two Gretches. Phil got me a Gretch. Awesome. He got me a White Falcon. Okay. Yes. Very nice. At the NAMM I, show. I went to the NAMM show and walked out with a Gretch for him. Yes. I got nothing for myself. I've had a deal at Peisty for 25 years, but I went to the NAMM show and he ended up with a Gretch. I don't know. That's a good friend. See, That's this, how is you how you, this is how you do this. Yeah. <laughs> My <laughs> Gretsch saw the picture of me playing the uh, black falcon, which is really it's a silver falcon, but it's black and paint. And he 
you know, Phil showed him the thing because the Wolf of Wall Street thing was happening. He goes, hey, take care of that guy. So I got another one. Then I have, uh, I've got two Telecasters, a buddy of mine, speaking of giving guitars, a, a buddy of mine that I've known since fifth grade, this guy named Rob Woodruff, he gave me a, a legit vintage uh, 67 Tele with a factory Bixby. That, I love that guitar. Yes. You know that hits me right here, man. Yeah, I was about to say that's right at the zone. And, and, that, and I had two custom shop Tellys. It's not like I was hurting for a Tele. Then that thing showed up and out went one of the custom shop Tellys to get the other amps. Uh, so, uh, and the two Falcons are, are tuned. One's open G, one's open D. And then I've got two nationals, same deal. Open G, open D. Yeah. Um, you have to realize something. I just got to jump in here because sure. this is, you know, something that we're kind of known for, um, in that, you know, we roll into a, we roll into a club, small club, 200 seat club. And we roll in there with seven, eight nine guitars yeah. <laughs> because they're tuned differently they all have yeah. different sounds people look at us like who, who are you guys who do you think you are yeah. you know and is there another way to do it retuning i mean you know you're talking about the show the yeah. flow of the show versus the sound i mean he could stand up there and retune it, but i like to move quick because yeah. i'm i'm constantly rapping to the crowd and i want things to roll i don't want to stand there if we don't have a guy you know we're, we're not in a position where we can keep the, the guy on retainer who's Joey's tech, who's got everything dialed in a lot. Sometimes he's doing it himself. We're not right. using any techs. We're just in there, but we do have to find room for seven, eight, nine guitars on the side of the stage. And it's pretty room. insane. There's always room. There's always room. We, we have to go to the airport too. We go on a fly date, you know, we can get it down. Maybe what six for a fly date. Yeah. I scale. Yeah. I scale it down. So, I mean, it's tough. They're, they're, you know, we, we went it sounds into rough. It really does. We went into, we went into the Viper room um, about, uh, well, when was it? A uh, year ago. And uh, this was like for our first show in Los Angeles after we began this different marketing method. So we really put a lot of effort into putting, like, let's get 200 people into the Viper room, but we're going to sell our own tickets. You know, we had a whole big beef with them over how the tickets were going to be sold because they had a relationship with the ticketing company. We didn't want to use it. We wanted the link to our website on their website. You know, a lot of hassle, even on that level, to make that work the way we wanted it to work. We finally get there. Then we get to the Viper. I don't know if you guys have ever been in that room. Yeah, right. So, you know, they've got those booths all over the place. There's, you know, there's a half a dozen booths in the place. And usually what you do in there is because there's no, there's no wings on the stage. The stage is in a corner and there, there, there is no wing. It's just walls. So if you're working with a guitar tech, that guy's on the floor and the guitars are usually in one of those booths. But we've got, you know, nine guitars there that night because I played acoustic that night so there's a bunch of guitars so our guitar guy our guitar tech that night who's a great guy he's been out with us on different things did the dada tour and works with uh, a lot of people work you know he's a professional he rolls in there first thing he does is unbolts one of the tables the cocktail tables in the booth and pulls it out and, oh. and moves it puts it in a fire in the fire lane <laughs> the club manager comes in and goes ballistic you know you what do you guys who do you think you are what are you doing he's got the guitars all sitting in the booth you know hey man we play with sting yeah he's like and the guy again comes to me and he goes listen we've had uh a lot of big bands in here 
you know, I don't know who you guys think you are, but you know, you, we've had, we've had guns and roses in here and you, you can't take the table out. So uh, we, we managed to uh, avoid uh, fisticuffs that night and the guitars didn't get up on stage. But it is a thing to, have to come in with that much gear, right. just in guitars alone. You've got to put them somewhere. And right. we, we, do, we do find a place. Yeah. Let alone the pedal board. I don't know if you want to get into that. Well, yeah, this is gear and gigs. Yeah. We need to know about the pedal board. The pedal board's got, you know, the pedal board is legendary. And right now is a golden time for pedal board. There have been darker times. Yeah. in the pedal board world for me personally uh and it's been a journey on this in this band i mean because in dada first off i'm playing bass and I, you know i'm one of the two lead singers so i'm singing i'm playing bass uh, i got a, I got a tuner uh, there's a maybe like there was a time in dada where i i was pretty jacked with with ants i had two svt full svts you know compressors the whole thing um anyways um but it's I got a fuzz, max, you know, that's it. So um, moving on to guitar with putting a whole pedal board together was, uh, it was like I was in first grade again. I mean, I, I had to learn that whole thing about pedals and, you know, studio pedals setups are totally different than live pedals, you know, it's taken me a long time. Uh, fast forward to now, I just got a Schmidt Array pedal board. Are you hip to those? Yep, I got one. They're Built in Germany, and the guy—it's a—it's a. There's a guy in Germany and a guy in England, and they—they they make them. It's—it's it's a Rolls Royce of pedal boards. It's so gorgeous, but they're super compact, and they have little la layers. If you watch uh, that pedal show, those guys are building on Schmidt Array. I was just only emailing with the the guy actually in Germany last week, trying to get him to come on. The show. Yeah, trying to get him to come on the show. Yeah. He's a very nice guy. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at now. I just put my Schmidt Array pedal board together. And it, it really, the thing is, the thing I've learned, I've got a lot of pedals. Mm -hmm. And that's great. It's great in the studio, especially, because we can sit there, even if you have, if you, you know, you've got uh, different uh, uh, drives, you've got clean drives, you've got boost, you've got overdrive, you've got fuzz, all that stuff. You can have multiple ones because they all kind of do sound different and they sound different through different amps. You're in a studio with a different, you know, maybe you're using the studio amps, some vintage blackface, you know, 65 Vibrolux or whatever. And it just your stuff, it just all sounds different. And you can kind of key in on the song, like, you know what? This is the perfect thing for this song. But when you go out on the road, you don't need all quite so many options and it, it isn't the tone variance isn't really what it is in the studio. It's like, it's going into, it's bouncing around a club wall, right? right. You just kind of got to get close. You know, you want to get your drives set up. I finally figured that out. You know, I've got like real clean, first stage, you know, super clean. It's like, I, it took me a while to figure that out. Why does it sound heavy metal whenever I go, I just want to be louder and it's, you know, all of a sudden it might sound metal, it's, it's the wrong kind of boost. So um, I just got that figured out. Uh, I, I love it. I love I love what I got going right now. Um, there's a cup one pedal that's kind of on the bubble, but you know it's basically like I think I've got uh, three, two drives, one uh, overdrive, two clean drive, clean boosts, one overdrive, uh, two different delays, mm -hmm. which is new for me, and I'm 
kind of digging that. And then uh, I've got one of those uh, Strymon flints, which is great. You know, it takes up one little real estate, but you get two things. And that's basically what I, I got a compressor. I got a, a, the Cali 76. Oh, yeah. That's what I use. Love that. That's, that's, I, you know, I use that on the uh, National. It's great on the National for slide. We did, we did add some other gear to the uh, arsenal uh, recently at the end of, um, in the fall, last fall. And we haven't gotten a chance to use it that much. We did a, a short run uh, on the West Coast in the fall. And then we did a show at the Troubadour this year before we all got shut down. And that was basically it. But it's all, uh, it's all sound. It's, it's monitors. And we're using it for monitors in front of house. It's the... Uh, Behringer, the X32, and uh, yeah. you know we're 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 running the um, ears through there for and we're we're you know we've got the app on the phone. We're doing monitoring. For, right. That's what you do too, isn't it, Trey? Yeah, yeah it's the same setup I'm using. And then we're also using it. You know, we're bypassing their front of house because we're in so many different kinds of rooms, and we've run into so many problems where. You know the 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 front of house console is a piece of garbage, or you know it's just like we got to roll in plug in and we're good. And so now we've got our whole setup. It only costs like, I mean, I, I'd have to pull up the list of all the pieces because I'm, again, not this kind of a gear guy. But this was put together by one of our uh, front of house guys that we've worked with over the years. And he you know, wanted to put something together for us that we could roll into a club, things in a rack. The monitors are there. We can get it wired up quick. We, that was another problem. It would take so long to get the stage wired and get the monitors right. This way, the mix yeah. is saved. We roll in there and go into their, uh, you know, into their system, bypassing the front of house board. And our our engineer is mixing off an iPad, and we're all on the on the phone dialing yeah. in. You know, any monitor changes, we dial it in at rehearsal and it's take it out. But it's it is better. I mean, we, we just, you know, we haven't had enough time really to get it totally. Paul Sting. You know. I mean, I, I think it took us, because I mean, I've been running that exact same setup for uh, two years now, and it took us about a year to kind of figure out all the nuances to it. Yeah. But I mean, we walk into a club and it's left, right, and sub. Yeah. If if the, the sound guy's getting paid in beer, it's left, right, and sub. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we're basically like my bass player and I are going out on the floor with the iPad and mixing from out there. And while he's doing bass, I'm mixing for him and, and vice versa. And then we do, we have our individual mix. It has made a world of difference. So that's cool that, that y'all are doing the same thing. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting another chance to, to deal with it, to, to be out right. with it, to do some gigs with it because uh, we, like I said, we were just kind of getting into it, but you could just see even from the early going that, Oh, this, this, uh, on a club level, this is going to be a big improvement because just the, you know, you, we like to get in early club owners don't want to open the room up, you know, the, the, the doors, the, the time element, you know, we need some time on stage. This is going to speed everything up. Yeah. But uh, and as far as drums go, I, I, you know, for for a long time, I, I played a, a 1967 a Ludwig Super Classic, nice. and, uh, and recently, la but then I it was a 22 inch kick, and when I moved the drums, when we started to expand the band, I just didn't want to. The footprint was too big, and I wanted a smaller bass drum so that I would the old Ringo thing, small bass drum. I'm bigger, you know, because I'm trying to front the band. So I actually went down to an 18-inch bass drum. I had this little Gretsch Catalina, which is, you know, a $600 drum set. 
which right. they're pretty cool. And I took that out uh, and did some shows with that. And then this last year, though, I finally decided I wanted to buy, I wanted to move up a little bit. So I, I bought a, a Gretsch uh, broadcaster that had a 20 inch bass drum on it. And that's the perfect size because that's still plenty of bottom and plenty of rock and roll. Even though it's 20, 12, 14, you tune them down a little bit and get them into the PA. It sounds huge. You, know, right. you don't need to have the biggest bass drum in the world to get enough. I like the bottom to be punchy anyway. I don't want you know a lot of a lot of extra low end. I like it to be a little cleaner, and it yeah. looks great and and it's road worthy because you know you take a fifty year old drum set out on the road, after a while it's going to start to not appreciate that. Um, I know what you're talking about. I was a drummer singer for about eight years and I ended up, I went through 14 different kits trying to find the right setup and the right combination. At one point I had 16 drums and 18 cymbals and it took me, you know, three hours to set up and three hours to tear down. And eventually I'm like, nobody cares. They're not here to see the drums. They're here to hear the band. And I ended up playing a, a four piece DW kit for, for the last five years, probably with a 20 inch cut uh, down to 14 inch in depth. I mean, it's yeah. a very small little jazz set up with a, an eight, 10 and a 12. And I finally eventually got a 15 and took out the eight and, and eventually took out the, the, uh, the 10 and made it the 12 and the 15. And that was it. And it was, yeah. it was beautiful. And what I found is that I was getting more different sounds out of each drum because I had to, and I got to know each drum much better when I had less drums to think about. And you're right. That kick drum was, was plenty, you know, yeah. mic'd up and coming through monitors. It was great. Yeah, and I like that 12 and 14. You know, I do, I ride on the floor tom a lot, but I still got plenty of, it, it, it has uh, more articulation. It's a little crisper than if you're playing a bigger drum. You can, you know, you, the definition is a little bit better. Those drums sound great. Broadcasters are oh, great yeah. show and a great yeah. design. And the, the hardware is really cool. That great sound. Yeah, I mean, I pay, you know, I didn't get a deal on it. Uh, I, I have been with Peisty for a long time, so I play 2002s for the most part. Um, but a traditional... Joey will get you a deal. He'll make a call, man. Yeah, I'll have him make, give Gretsch a call. Unfortunately, the drum division and the guitars are they're not in the same company anymore. Um, but the biggest... That, that, that sound setup, I think, is going to make a big difference for us when we, when we get back out on the road, whenever that is. Which I, I'm hoping that's, that's very soon. Go ahead, John. I was just going to say, it, the same, and I've heard you talk about this on some of your podcasts before, it, the, the, same, the same goes for Phil as it goes for me, and I was kind of touching on it before. What you use in the studio is not directly re, uh, reflected in your live setup. They don't have to be. Mm -hmm. Live setup has to not let you down. It's got to be great. You got to love it. It's got to be sexy, but it can't let you down. In the studio, you can play something that's just barely being held together by dental floss, and it was the old. It's from you know 150 years old, and it's so cool. It sounds great. No problem. Yeah. You track with that all day long. And and Phil, you you you're we're trying all different kinds. You're not afraid to try. Of course. In the studio, all bets are off. I mean, you know, you can use anything. There's this studio we work at in town that's got this 1940s Radio King Slingerland with a 26-inch bass drum. We use it all the time. And, uh, you know, you would never take that out because yeah. it's a antique, you know. The, the parts weren't made to kind of put up with that, kind of getting thrown in the back of a van. You know, you need something that has a little... Uh, strength will beef to it although i do use like the lightest hardware i can find i'm tired of dragging around heavy hardware you know well, it's, you just want that you want a uh, reliable approximation 
Yeah. And for me, I want a classic sound. So that's why I went with the broadcaster, which is, you know, a, a remake of a 1950s kind of Gretsch. And it's right, it's right there. They make it out of the same material. It's just the fittings are better. The hardware is better than it used to be. The way it's put together is, is modern. It's machined, you know. It's uh, just a more dependable. Because I, I had a lot of problems with that old uh, Ludwig, which is a great drum set. But, you know, things come loose and it's just, it, it can cause a problem. So I'd, I'd like to talk with you guys more about your studio production because you've got such great sounds on recordings and you create such instant atmosphere with every tune. But we are out of time for this podcast. Is there any way I can get you guys to, to come back soon and talk to us about some of the recording stuff? Oh, we're so busy. <laughs> <laughs> we can get you guys back, though? Of course. Oh, yeah. Because it was fun. We learned a lot and it was awesome. And I know our listeners are going to love this. Right. So hopefully we weren't too long-winded. No, not at all. Not at all. Thanks very much, ladies and gentlemen. It's Seven Horse, Phil Levitt, Joey Callio. So glad you guys could stop by. For Trey Hawkins, I'm Jet Stone. Thanks very much for seeing us here in Gigs. So glad you could join us for another episode of Gear and Gigs. Take a moment to like and subscribe. And don't forget to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. Until next time, take care.